evidence and answers. It appears that every time you turn around, scientists are claiming to have found what may be the missing link of human evolution. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will be speaking with noted apologist Dr. Fuzz Rana about this very thing. Here in part one of an interview entitled, Homo Naledi and the Hominids, have we found the missing link? Is Pat Zucran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we present the compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the challenges Christians face today. Well, in a cave in South Africa, there was recently discovered what scientists have announced as a new hominid or pre-human species. Scientists named this early humanoid species Homo naledi. Well, have we found the missing link between apes and humans? What implications does this find have for our view of Genesis and biblical anthropology? To help us with these questions is Dr. Fuzzo Rana. Dr. Rana writes and speaks extensively about evidence for creation emerging from biochemistry, genetics, human origins, and synthetic biology. Dr. Rana is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, Creating Life in the Lab, and The Cell's Design. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So, Dr. Fazrana, welcome to the show. Pat, thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit before we begin about your background here, how you, as a serious scientist, came to believe in God and eventually Jesus Christ? Well, I was an agnostic when I started graduate school to study biochemistry. I didn't know if God existed or not, and I really didn't care one way or the other. That wasn't important to me. But as I began to immerse myself in the study of the cell's intricacies and, and the different biochemical systems that make up life, I was deeply impressed with their elegance and their sophistication. In fact, the, their ingenuity, it almost looked as if they were designed by a mind. I began to seek out the scientific explanation for these systems, namely from an evolutionary standpoint, and I found that those explanations were inadequate. And as a result of that, I became convinced that there had to be a mind that was behind life, that brought life into existence. And that now opened me up to asking, uh, I think, even more important questions, namely, who is that creator that I discovered in the cell, and how do I relate to that creator? And it was about six months later, based on a pastor's challenge, that I began to read the Bible. And as I read through the Sermon on the, the Mount, I was uh, convicted of my sin and was convinced that Jesus must be who Christians claim him to be. And as a result of that, gave my life to, to Jesus and acknowledged Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. So, Fuzz, what you're saying is someone can be a serious scientist in the scientific field and it be consistent with their biblical convictions and their Christian worldview. Yes, I think so very much. You know, in fact, even though we live in a world today where many people see science in conflict with Christianity, I think it's important to remember that as Christians we should be at home in science because science is the study of nature and and that the more that we learn about nature, the more that we should see evidence for God's fingerprints. Scripture teaches us that God is revealed to us through the record of nature. 
and that we can not only see evidence for God's existence in the creation, but even begin to grasp some understanding of, of God's character and God's nature. I have a friend who is a Christian and a biochemist as well, named Dr. Russ Carlson, who's at the University of Georgia, and Russ likes to say that the Bible tells us that God spoke the universe into existence, and so he says, well, the creation is God's spoken word, whereas Scripture is God's written word to us, and so we would expect that as we study the creation, we should see evidence for God, and, and evidence that the Bible is reliable when it speaks about God's work as creator, and as Christians, we should again, be comfortable with science and not view science as a threat, but really an ally to the faith. Yes, Psalm 19, Romans 1 indicates that creation every day points to a creator. So God not only speaks through special revelation, the Bible, as you mentioned, but also through general revelation or his creation. Fuzz, what do we do when we come into conflict with science and the scriptures or what appears to be a conflict? Well, you know, I think that whenever we're dealing with science-faith issues, humility is a very, very important quality to embrace. And we have to be willing to recognize that just maybe, maybe we might be wrong about certain things. Because the conviction we should have as Christians is that the record of nature and the words of Scripture should never be in conflict with each other. But science is the enterprise by which we interpret nature and theology is the enterprise by which we interpret Scripture. And we are fallible human beings, and we can make mistakes. And if we make mistakes, then maybe there's going to be conflict that arises as a consequence of that. But it's a false conflict. It's not a genuine conflict. And if we look at our interpretations of Scripture and our interpretations of nature for places where maybe we made a mistake, usually if we correct that mistake, we see harmony resulting, not conflict. And so there's a difference between interpretation and our interpretation of Scripture and nature and what nature and Scripture actually says. So when they seem to come into conflict, and let's say the scientific evidence seems pretty strong, what you're saying is we shouldn't assume the Bible is wrong, but perhaps our interpretation of the Scriptures, that sometimes needs to be refined or corrected sometimes. Huh? But it's not the Bible, it's our interpretation of it, is what you're saying. That's right, and that's a big difference that we, we need to make, is there's a difference, again, between what Scripture says and what our interpretation might be. But likewise, I think we also have to have the courage as Christians that if we really believe that this is the proper way to read Scripture, and it's in conflict with science, that we don't necessarily assume that science now is going to trump Scripture, that we can adopt a position, I think, as Christians, that maybe there are times where Scripture will actually trump science. And sometimes, I've seen this happen many times, where it looks like there's very strong scientific evidence that really challenges the Christian faith, but as we learn more and more about that particular system, we oftentimes discover that what we thought was to be the case scientifically turns out not to be the case, and as we've learned more about that system and gained new insight and new understanding, we suddenly see that there's harmony where prior to that there was conflict. So part of it is humility, recognizing that we are fallible human beings that are interpreting nature and scripture, but part of it too is to realize that sometimes science hasn't got it correct, even though in, people may say this is the mainstream scientific idea, sometimes science may not have it correct. 
or sometimes we may have incomplete scientific understanding, and when that understanding becomes more complete, what looked like a conflict many times becomes some of the most powerful evidence for the Christian faith. Yes, give us an example of what you're talking about there. Well, uh, one example that I can point to has to do with so-called junk DNA. When I started working with Reasons to Believe as a full-time staff member, this would have been in the summer of 1999, there was literally nothing that we could say uh, that was compelling uh, with regard to addressing the challenge of junk DNA. And the idea here is that, according to this concept, that most of the genetic makeup of organisms consists of non-functional junk DNA that presumably was the vestige of an evolutionary history. But lo and behold, as time has gone on, we've discovered more and more examples of where we thought what was once junk DNA actually turns out to be functional, to the point now that most scientists have abandoned the junk DNA concept, and there's actually now data that indicates that a vast proportion of the human genome more than likely consists of functional DNA sequences. And so this is a situation where what looked to be the mainstream idea where there was a real challenge to the Christian faith when it came to junk DNA uh, turned out later on to be some of the most powerful evidence that we have that the human genome, which contains all of our genetic information, is actually an elegantly designed system. So that's one instance where just being patient and letting the science develop actually turned a, a conflict into a positive case for the Christian faith. Yeah, that's a great example, and that's one you write about in your book. Is that cell design, or who was Adam? Actually, in both books, both, okay. I've, I've addressed that issue. Well, Fuzz, as we approach this whole hominid issue, uh, tell us your view of Genesis, the creation account specifically. Well, I think Genesis 1 is a real historical description of God's creative work, and that what's described on the different days of creation is real, literal history describing, again, God's work as creator. I think that Genesis 1 is not exhaustive, and what I mean by that is I look at the days of creation as kind of snapshots describing what God has done, where there was a lot of information and details just simply left out, which is fun because now we have the privilege of discovering what God has done as we study you know, life's history and, and the history of the earth. But I look at Genesis 1 as a real literal history, and that includes the creation of humanity. I think God intervened in a direct and personal way to create human beings, as Genesis 2 says, at least Adam from the dust of the earth and Eve from Adam's side. I think that's a, a literal uh, description of God's creative work. And so my view would be one in which I would reject the, an evolutionary perspective, where I think that God has orchestrated and intervened repeatedly throughout Earth's history to bring about his creative purposes. Now, Fuzz, you say you believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Do you believe that they were the first humans created by God? Or uh, we know there's some other views out there that says, well, there were the other humans, but they're the first ones with the soul or the spirit of God. Do you believe they are the first humans created in the image of God? Yes, exactly. That's, what, what I, I, that's the view that I hold, that Adam and Eve were directly and personally created by God, that they were the first human beings, that they were the progenitors to all of humanity, and that they stood apart from all other creatures in that they, again, uniquely possessed the image of God or the Imago Dei. Well, now define for us what we mean here by these discoveries, these hominids. Define for us what we mean by that. 
that's essentially a scientific term that refers to these primates that had the ability to walk erect. And it looks as if some of the primates had the capacity to make tools, but their tool production was crude and cumbersome. They obviously had some intellectual capability and emotional capability, but there's no way that we could argue that they bore the image of God. The way I like to think about the hominids is that they are just simply creatures that existed for a period of time, created by God, but then later went extinct. I, I like to think of them in the same vein that we would think of the great apes, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. Fascinating creatures that have some measure of intelligence, emotional capability, but yet they clearly are not like human beings in any way, shape, or form. We would argue the difference between a chimp and a human at least in, in large measure, is the fact that we bear the image of God and those creatures do not. But yet, we have really good data from observations of chimps in captivity and in the wild. They are able to manufacture tools. They even make stone tools, believe it or not. They can manufacture spears to hunt with. People have observed that behavior in the wild. They will occupy caves. They make beds in trees that are pretty sophisticated structures. They even mourn their dead. So they're doing all these remarkable things, but yet the cognitive ability of a chimp is nowhere near that of humans. Chimps are not spiritual creatures, but yet human beings are. And so when we compare chimps with humans, clearly there's a big difference. And again, we would say as Christians that difference is in large measure the image of God. And so why couldn't there be creatures like the hominids, like Neanderthals or Homo erectus or Lucy, or Homo habilis, handyman, that existed, that behaved in a similar vein to chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas, and then later went extinct. Why would we necessarily need to look at these creatures as somehow being evolutionary preambles to human beings? We could easily see them as part of the creation that God put in place. Now, many dismiss these hominids as fraudulent you know, man-made fabrications, and there have been a few that have been fraudulent and proven to be so. However, there's some believe that these are valid and that these are actually ancestors of humans, perhaps the link between apes and humans. Uh, how should we approach this issue? We don't want to be one extreme just completely dismissing them all, but then again, we don't want to go to the other extreme as well. As you point out, Pat, there have been a number of instances where evolutionary biologists have engaged in forgery and, and fraudulent activity to try to pass off orangutan remains and things like that as this would be the tilt-down man forgery, trying to pass that off as, as a transitional intermediate to justify Darwin's theory of, of human evolution. But that doesn't mean that everything that's been discovered is fraudulent. So, for example, this recent discovery of Homo naledi, clearly, this is clearly a creature that is unlike anything that we have ever been familiar with. It's a highly unusual specimen that looked like it walked erect, but also looked like it had the ability to swing through trees. It had a very small brain size, about the size of an orange, and yet also had the ability, looks like, to manipulate tools with its hands. It, again, looks like it walked erect, very much like we would walk erect. But again, I, I just look at this as a creature that God created that existed and then later went extinct. Now, evolutionary biologists view the, fo the hominid fossil record in evolutionary terms where they argue, well, these are transitional intermediates. But the fact of the matter is evolutionary biologists really do not know how human evolution transpired. If you assume 
for a minute that human evolution is true, evolutionary biologists have no way of knowing how that transpired. Some of the key transitional intermediates that people point to as being part of the human descent, like Lucy or Homo habilis and Homo erectus and Neanderthals, in many instances are considered to be side branches and dead ends that really were not part of the, the lineage that led to modern humans. And there's total chaos when it comes to paleoanthropology. People draw their evolutionary trees, but none of them agree with each other. And then a new discovery is made, like Homo naledi, and it throws the whole discipline into chaos where everybody is rewriting the human evolutionary story. That, to me, doesn't sound like a discipline that's providing us with compelling reasons to think that human beings evolved, but rather is a discipline that struggles to explain how evolution happened, which makes me skeptical that it even happened whatsoever. And the way I look at it is that these creatures do share certain traits in common with humans, at least biologically speaking, but you could just see that as, as evidence for common design. People that design things that invent things will use the same designs over and over again. And that reflects, to me, the work of intelligent agency, not necessarily common descent or evidence for common descent. Now, that's a picture that we don't see that you've described here that, you know, we don't see in the public here. When we're looking at these public textbooks, it looks like that tree of life going from and these transitional forms, especially when it comes to these, you know, from apes to these hominids to human beings. It looks like they've got a pretty compelling case here. But you're saying that's not the case indeed. They really don't know, and the evidence goes in many different directions. Well, you know, and, and that again is something that I think is tragic, is the way in which human evolution is presented to the public is that this is basically a theory that's all battened down, that there's no doubt whatsoever that human beings evolved, but when you actually dig into the scientific literature, you see that there's all kinds of debates that are going on as to how the different hominins relate to each other and which ones would be potentially part of the human evolutionary tree, and there's so much dispute, there's no consensus whatsoever. And again, those creatures that we traditionally think as part of that human evolutionary drama are rendered side branches and dead ends many times by evolutionary biologists themselves. Uh, people debate constantly over what constitutes a species and how many different hominid species were there. And how, you know, even like with Homo naledi, even though the anthropologists who discovered this creature argued that it's a novel creature, there's others that have come along and said, no, it's just another example of Homo erectus. So there's even those kind of debates. With that kind of chaos and uncertainty, it's very difficult, I think, to feel comfortable that human evolution is again, indeed, a fact when there's that kind of chaos and uncertainty. You know, oftentimes I think we need to recognize as Christians that there's a certain worldview in play that evolutionary biologists have. It's a worldview of naturalism or materialism where they would argue there is no God and that uh, the only way then we can explain human origins if we adopt that mindset is that human beings must have evolved. But that conclusion that human beings evolved is more of a philosophical pre-commitment than actually something that emerges out of the, the data itself. You know, it's interesting, prior to Darwin, there was a biologist of the name Sir Richard Owen who actually developed a whole theory for biology built around the concept of an archetype, where Owen argued that 
there are these archetypical designs that exist in the mind of the creator and that different organisms display manifestations of that archetypical design. And so he would see shared features that animals possessed, for example, as reflecting, again, this common design as opposed to common descent. Well, when Darwin came along and proposed his theory of evolution, he was trying to explain the origin and the history of life through mechanism, as opposed to Owen, who was explaining it through the work of a mind. And at that time, people were so enamored with the concept and the idea of mechanism that Darwin's theory just simply took over, and Owen's ideas were rejected, not because they lacked evidential support, but because it was just more appealing to the scientific community that was leaning towards naturalism and materialism to look at mechanism as the way to explain the origin and the history of life. And so as a consequence of that, ideas and interpretations of the history of life that were friendly to theism, to a Christian perspective, simply don't get an airing or a hearing within the scientific community or with the public at large many times. Yeah, you know, in studying the history of biology, it's very interesting. We don't hear about the theories that were there, and suddenly, you know, Darwin comes on the scene with his theory, and suddenly his theory just suddenly took off. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about it, but why is it that people were so ready to accept Darwin's theory from a naturalistic worldview and not hear these others who are coming from a theistic worldview? That's kind of a, a, a complex question, of course, but maybe to answer that question in a little bit of a simplistic way, but I think there's an element of truth to this, and that is most of the scientific disciplines by the mid-1800s were steeped in mechanism. This was very much the case for physics, it was the case for chemistry, it was the case as well for, for geology, and so there was a strong desire on the part of biologists to make biology mechanistic as well. And at that time, Owen had prior to Darwin, had developed this very elaborate theory, again, for explaining shared features, but it was a theory that was friendly to intelligent design, friendly to creation. And when Darwin came along and presented mechanism as the way to explain the origin of life, because of that desire to make biology mechanistic as well, it just simply took over, and Owen's ideas were, were abandoned. And so it, it wasn't that Owen's ideas failed, that they were tried and they failed, it's that they weren't even tried, they were just abandoned. Yeah, that's a fascinating study of history there. Now, explain to us, when it comes to these hominid groups, explain to us the different type of hominid groups there. From my understanding, there are four major groups. Australopithecus is the oldest, then there's Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and Neanderthal man. So explain to us the first one, Australopithecus. The oldest yeah, the, one. yeah, these are creatures that look like they have the ability to walk erect. There's a debate right now as to whether or not their ability to walk was referred to as obligatory bipedalism or facultative bipedalism. And, and what's meant by that is facultative bipedalism would have been a very crude type of, of ability to walk erect, where these creatures would also still knuckle walk at times like the apes knuckle walk, they may have made their way through trees, like apes can make their way through trees. And so they weren't relying solely on, on the ability to walk erect, although there's a dispute as to whether or not that's the case. Some people say that they had to walk erect. That was the only means of locomotion. But they, these creatures are very much like 
chimpanzees. They had very small brain sizes. They were diminutive in size, maybe four feet at, at, in height at the most. And again, had more, as much in common with chimpanzees as anything else. And then you have Homo habilis, which is also a rather diminutive creature, but this creature clearly walked erect and employed, again, what's called obligatory bipedalism. It looks as if this creature was the first creature to make tools, at least in the, among the hominins, and it, the, the tools that it made were relatively crude. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>